Welcome. It's a good day to be gathered together in the in the house of the Lord, in the name of the Lord, and to be reminded from the beginning that it is because of God's great love for us that He sent Jesus, our Savior, and in Him we have salvation and 
redemption. So with that, good morning and welcome to Cross Timber. If you are a NASCAR fan, this is a big day for you. Um, the Daytona 500 is today. If you are a fan of the XFL, um, I'm praying for you because that's the alternate football league. Um, that's also starting today. But more important than all of those things is the fact that we get to join together um, in the country that we live in with the freedom to worship together, to gather together, to enjoy um, the presence of the Lord and the company of one another. And so with that, I say um, welcome. If you're here with us and you're visiting, we're glad to see you. If you're joining us online, it's um, we appreciate you taking time to tune in. And if you're a regular attender or a member, um, welcome back. It's always good to see you. I just want to point out something that I always point out. Um, you can probably do this without me telling you, but we have a little card in the bulletin that um, lets us um, share information with one another. Um, it's it's low tech. It just requires this little card made out of paper and a pen or pencil. Um, you write on it and you put it in the offering plate and you can um, ask questions. You can share prayer requests. You can update information. And we would um, love for you to take advantage of that. If you do share a prayer request with us, just let us know if it's okay to put that um, out over email. Or if you'd rather us not do that, we want to honor your wishes um, as well. Let me just point out a few things before we're, we're going to read together from the Gospel of Mark chapter 4. So if you want to find your place over there and maybe mark it um, after we finish the announcements we're reading there um, together. First, I want to highlight um, last month we started a monthly Bible verse cards and we had the um, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old things have gone, the new have come. This month, our verse is Colossians 3.14. It's a purple card and you can pick them up right out there. And the way that you handle this is you take the green one out of your magnet holder, put it somewhere and you place this one inside it. If you're not using a magnet holder, just put this on your mirror or somewhere where you see it regularly. And the verse for this month just reminds us that above all these to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We need um, the love, but not just any love in the world. We need the love of God both in our hearts um, and in our actions as we reach out to the people around us. And this is a good reminder that all those qualities and attributes um, can be summed up in one thing, love, loving God and loving others. So be sure and pick up one of those. Also, I want to remind you this Wednesday night, 6.30 at Premier Movie Theater, which is down the road um, next to Kroger across from HEB. Um, we have the opportunity for an early showing of the movie that is coming out, Jesus Revolution, about the Jesus movement um, in the early 1970s. Um, because of a, a generous gift from the um, company that produced the film, um, we have tickets that are free available, that are available for free. And um, as of this morning, we still have 18 of those tickets available. So if you did not sign up last week, you can sign up this morning, and I can get you some tickets. If you did sign up last week, there should be a card on the table as you go outside with your name on it, and your tickets will be attached. Um, it's a great opportunity to um, be reminded about God's willingness um, to work in those that desperately um, seek after him. The Jesus movement of the early 1970s is the last great um, spiritual awakening that we have seen in North America. And I think the timing um, of the movie, along with what God's doing at some of the university campuses around our um, nation, is very exciting. If you haven't read about the revival that's ongoing um, at Asbury University and the one that is or, or in 
probably around 30 to 35 other campuses, including another Christian university, Cedarville University. I just encourage you to read some articles. You'll see um, some folks that are um, that are in support of those wholeheartedly. You see some that are that are critical. Uh, but I do um, ask you to to consider this: that um, many times when God works, um, we don't understand everything He's doing. But we do understand when God shows up and God is at work. And, um, and so I, I encourage you to, to look at that as a movement of God, to not look at it with, with harshness or skepticism, but to, to join in seeing God at work, to rejoice, and also to pray that God would do the same thing um, in our church, in our community, and in our campuses, that we would see a movement of God in our community as well. Let me just remind you of a couple of things. Um, lastly, men's breakfast tomorrow morning, 6.30 at the Elk Diner. Men, if you're available, we'd love to have you join us. And then Wednesday, we have our lunch Bible study that starts at 11 um, with prayer. We sing um, hymns together. We study God's Word, and we take time to pray before we enjoy lunch. And we would um, love to have you be a part of that if you have not um, been a part of that before. I want us to read together a couple of parables from Mark chapter 4 that talk about that secret hidden work that God does on the inside that we don't always understand we don't always see but we're so thankful for and that his kingdom grows um, all around us and he's working and he's encouraging us as his believers his followers to, to join him in that work so Mark chapter 4 beginning in verse number 26 your Bible may have that parable titled the parable of the growing seed and he Jesus said the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground he sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows he knows not how the earth produces by itself first the blade then the ear then the full grain in the ear but when the grain is ripe at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Will you join us as we pray for our offering this morning? Thank you. 
There is no other name but the name that is Jesus. He who was and still is and will be through it all. Come on, man, the space between all the things I've seen and his reckoning. I know I will never be.
chapter 2. You want to find where that is in your, your Bible. It might be helpful. You can find the rather lengthy book of Job and just back up. And right before that, you'll find 
the little book of Esther, as we continue on and looking at this story of God's faithfulness in the midst of a world that is set against it, an empire that is filled with darkness and evil, yet God's hand is still at work. In fact, you know, every day, all around us, God is working. He reveals things to individuals. He protects. He proclaims. He invites those to follow after Him. He provides help that sometimes we recognize and sometimes we never really recognize. He reminds us of things that we shouldn't forget and we should never forget that God's still in the saving business through Jesus, our Savior. But we have to admit, if we were honest, that most days just seem normal. But we have to understand that underneath that level of normal, God's still working. His hand is in all things. That even those little things that happen, that don't seem at the time to be very important, that one of those after another, all along the way, we can see God at work. Now, sometimes it's almost like working a maze from the end to the beginning. We have to start where we are and look back to see every dot on the map where God is at work. For example, one day, a missionary just happened to see a sign that said services for the blind. And that missionary just happened to have a child in her home that was both blind and adoptable. And the office for the blind just happened to give the missionary the name of a vision teacher in Burleson, Texas. And that vision teacher and her husband just happened to be called to adopt. And because God had a hand in all those things, and if you look, all those just happens, trace an amazing journey with several more supposed just happenings along the way. Trips to Texas, from Texas to Honduras, and Honduras back to Texas. And today, the story of adventure and joy just continues to be written. 2,500 years ago, in a Persian city called Susa, there was a series of events that just happened to take place. A king just happened to get drunk, call for his queen. And the queen refused, and the king was angry. And with the help of his trusted advisors, the king comes up with a plan to banish the queen and get a new one. Vashti's out. It's time for a new queen. And in the middle of this, a beautiful Jewish orphan girl just happens to be in Susa. And today we're going to look at how she becomes queen. But underneath that story, I want us to remember this truth that the ever-present hand of God works throughout history to advance His purposes and preserve His people. And as we read this chapter, we follow the storyline, but I want you to remember that all along the way, there's a bunch of just-so-happens that connect the dots to God's wonderful plan 
of redemption. Let's look at it together. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, After these things, reminding us about the events of chapter 1, the drunken party, the queen being summoned and refusing and then banished. And it says, When the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. And let the king appoint officials in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who please young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Deconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided for her with her provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women, her young women to be the best to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each woman to go into the go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women since this was the regular period of their beautifying 6 months with oil of myrrh and 6 months with spices and ointments for women then the young women went in to be went into the king in this way she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace in the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashkov, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Bihol, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king. She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. 
so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai, just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found out to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Oh Lord, as we look at your word this morning, we pray you would turn our eyes toward you. Lord, that we would not only see the truth, but we would also see the Savior. You would help us to see our wonderful, glorful Lord, high and lifted up, that you would help us to see your hand at work in all circumstances. And Lord, you would show us how we should respond in a way that pleases you. And we ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So building on the events of last week, where after a series of banquets, the king finds himself without a queen and in need of another queen, we're brought to the point of the story where he remembers. And a plan is hatched for him to choose another queen, and the circumstances unfold that this young Jewish girl, Esther, is chosen queen. We have some notes in the middle of your bulletin to help you follow along as we follow through the story, just looking at the different points. Hopefully you'll find it helpful, but the first thing we need to see is that there was a plan to choose a new queen. See, Vashti is now gone, but not forgotten. So after the banquets, the refusal and the banishment, the king's anger is starting to subside, and he remembers Vashti. How she refused to come to the banquet, how he became angry, he sought advice, and after those circumstances, she's no longer queen. Now, we're not told whether he's remorseful about his decision or whether he's having second thoughts. We're just simply told that he remembered. Could be that he was just concerned about his appearance. What does it look like to be a king without a queen? And in the midst of this, the servants come up with a plan Gather together all the young, beautiful virgins from the empire. Bring them to Susa. Put them under the guidance of Haggai, the king's eunuch. And the text says that let the young woman who pleased the king be queen instead of Vashti. So the servants come up with a a great plan with one goal in mind. They want to please the king to find the woman that pleases the king, and then she will be the queen. Now, we have to understand, and and I know you may have read the story in Sunday school, you might have watched the Tales version of Esther, 
um, this was much more than a beauty contest. Beauty, beautiful women were, were gathered together, whether it was voluntary or not, it's not revealed to us. But if you take into account the, the evil of the day, the, um, the noted promiscuity of the king and the fact that he had harem and concubines, you could probably liken the gathering of these young, beautiful women to something like we would call human trafficking in modern day. The officials are out there with three requirements in mind. They're looking for young, beautiful virgins to gather them together, to bring them in. Only one's going to be chosen, and the criteria for that judgment, that contest, is do they please the king? Women chosen because of their appearance, and the one who is most sexually pleasing to the king would be the next queen. And there's no doubt that this is immoral. It's degrading. It's exploitive of women. It's evil in the sight of God. It's, it should be shocking to us as we read it. But it's much in line with both the sexualized culture of that day in the Persian Empire and the values that you know the world around us holds to these days. And so these verses, verse 4, set up this contest for choosing the queen. And we're reminded that even in the lives of pagan kings, God's hand is at work. But we're left with this question, how in the world could God use this ungodly contest to choose a queen? How could that be for his purpose? Well, we have to keep reading, and if you haven't read the story from beginning to end, I encourage you to do that. It, it really helps you to put things in perspective. But at this point, after setting up the contest, the king, the author takes a bit of a diversion to introduce us to some additional characters. Ahasuerus is the only main character left from the first chapter, because Vashti is gone. And so, in the next three verses, verses 5 through 7, the author introduces us to a man and a woman that have an interesting heritage. They're both Jews. And the second thing you see in your outline is exiles in a foreign land. Verse 5 says, there was a Jew in Susa. So we have two things, Jews people from Judah, God's people, living in Susa, which is Persia, modern-day Iran, Iraq. And the first question we have to ask is, why are they there? Well, a brief history. In 597 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar conquered the land of Judea and took God's people into captivity. They call that the Babylonian captivity. Then, after, you know, as the as you read through history, it's one major power being conquered by another, and the Babylonians don't last long. The Persians come in, and under Cyrus the Great, who reigned over Persia, he allowed for Jews to return home after 70 years. Now, many returned under the leadership of Ezra, but some chose to stay. And those that remained were under the rule of this king, Ahasuerus, also called Xerxes, who was the grandson of Cyrus the Great. And they were living their lives and 
doing their best to practice their faith in the midst of this worldly culture of Persia. And from among those Jews that remain, the story zooms in to focus on two very important people. And the author wants us to meet a man named Mordecai. He says he was among the Jews, and he's a man from the tribe of Benjamin. Doesn't tell us exactly what his job was, but he's some sort of official in the royal government, and he has adopted his uncle's orphan daughter. So we have Mordecai, and we have his adopted daughter, Esther. Hebrew name, Hadassah, meaning Myrtle. Esther, from the Persian, meaning star. And verse 7 tells us an important fact about her. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. The old NIV just says that she was lovely in form and features. You could say it this way. Her, her beauty would be noticeable to anyone when she entered a room. And as you read along, you get the idea that this attribute, her beauty, will be used for a purpose. And so we meet Mordecai, we're introduced to Esther, and then verse 8 takes us right back into this contest and answers the question, who wins? And as you read through those verses, you find that Esther wins favor. You'll see that word mentioned, favor. She finds favor, first of all, with Haggai. Then she has favor with all the people, and then finally with the king. And when you think of that word, you hear that word favor, you have to, to go back to the, the fact that the reason she found favor with those individuals was because she, first of all, had favor with God. It's his hand at work in this. But back to the story. Sorry, I, I got off track there a little bit. So there's... There's this gathering together of many girls, and they're placed in a harem under a eunuch's care. Brief definition, harem just means house of women. Eunuch is a castrated male that was entrusted with the charge of the women. And in this harem, these young women are removed from society, detached from their family, isolated from their friends. They're residents of the palace. Wow, that might be a good thing. But they're property of the king. Not so good. And they undergo 12 months of beauty treatment, six months with oil and myrrh, six months with spices and ointments. They go through this long beautification process that was according to the Persian rituals. In the midst of this 12-month preparation, Esther, the one whose name means star, begins to, to shine among the others. The eunuch who's in charge, Haggai. The Bible tells us that she pleased him and won his favor. For some reason, out of all those girls, Haggai the eunuch took Esther under his wing. And he set her up for success. He gave her the best provisions that were Available, He gave her seven personal attendants to assist her. And you can see that it's God's hand working in that. Because God had a plan. 
she would shine above the rest because God's favor had shined on her. But all the while, even though she's got all the looks going for her, she has a secret. She, she's a Jew. Now, we're not told exactly why that's dangerous, but if you read the story, you know, at this point, you think, okay, there's got to be a reason for this. And then very soon when you get into chapter 3, you find out, okay, there is a reason that it's dangerous. It's a man named Haman. And we find that Esther has always been a compliant child ever since she's been brought up by Mordecai. And he gives her instructions and she follows him. Don't reveal your family history. Don't tell him you're Jewish. For her protection. See, throughout all of history, the devil's had an all-out assault on God's people to try to eliminate them from the face of the earth. Started with, with Pharaoh, it continued through history. It certainly happened in the days of Haman. We see it up in the time of, of the Crusades. We see it in, in modern history in the events of World War II. And we see time and time again, even as today they face opposition from their their Arab neighbors that God protects them. They're the apple of his eye, his chosen people. And one of those chosen people uses secrecy to protect herself because God had a plan to use her in the future to save his people. Now Mordecai must have been a very loving and protective stepdad, because not only does he give her that advice, but he keeps watch over her. He's not allowed into the harem court, the harem, but he walks by the court every day, maybe to peer over the fence and see what's going on or hear, you know, a report to learn how Esther was doing and what was happening. And while Esther watched out for Esther, while Mordecai watched out for Esther day after day, Night after night, verse 13 tells us that the turn came for each woman to go in to King Ahasuerus. Young lady after young lady was given what they wanted. Could be clothes, jewelry, perfume, whatever they thought they needed to impress the king. And then on the evening, a young lady would go in, and in the morning she would come out. to be explored or enjoyed for the king's pleasure, robbed of dignity and freedom. Out of all those women, only one would be clean. The rest would spend their days as captives in the harem of concubines. No guarantee they'd ever see the face of the king again unless he happened to remember them and call them by name. And they would likely live out their days there couldn't see their family again. So among this ungodly parade of pleasure, the turn comes for Esther. She follows the advice of Haggai. Remember, Esther had his favor. And she only takes what he recommends. we 
wonder, what would the king be? Well, the Bible tells us, verse 17, that the king loved Esther more than all the women. There's a song from some of you's last, some of your lifetimes, what's love got to do with it? Well, in this case, very little. The Hebrew word there is translated love. But when it's used in the imperfect tense, the word has a different shade of meaning. It means to long for or to desire sexually. So when it says the king loved Esther, it wasn't, you know, the love at first sight, once and forever, always, you know, faithful love. It was the king was pleased by this young girl Esther more than any other. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. At this point, we don't know how many women, but the competition's over. Esther is the winner. And Ahasuerus has found what he's looking for. And the rest of verse 17 tells us that Esther is crowned queen instead of Vashti interesting to note that this is the last time Vashti's name is mentioned in the book. There's a transition of queens. It's now Queen Esther instead of Queen Vashti. It's interesting as you read through this, you know, because you're probably thinking, okay, well, I thought this was a love story and there may be love involved, but Vashti and Esther both are only mentioned as queens. They're never mentioned as the wife of. And so we have no indication of, you know, a, a marriage relationship that would equal what we would call a holy matrimony today. But why would we? Because it's a pagan king and a pagan world. But it still leaves those times when you want to scratch your head and wonder what's God doing? Why would a Jewish girl be doing this? What we can say with certainty is that God's put her in a place of influence for a particular purpose. What purpose? We have to wait and see. But we trust that God had a reason. But even though she's now the queen, there's still that one challenging fact. She's a Jew and no one but Mordecai knows. So for the moment, everything is right and good in the empire. The king got what he wanted, a new queen. And the king calls a celebration for the empire. Another banquet's held. It's named after Esther. It's important to note that there's another banquet because there's banquets all through the book, and each one is important. But the contrast here is, you know, the last banquet we see is one where the queen is refusing to appear, and here is a banquet in honor of the queen. And the king once again puts his generosity on display. He grants a tax holiday. So they give them some people some relief from taxes. It doesn't tell us what gifts, but there's royal gifts. So um, you know, I, I was thinking as I was reading through this about the tax, you know, all the we got the you know the free money during COVID that they mailed out to some people, and they give you tax breaks, something like this. You know, the government is just 
you know, celebrating by handing out some, some free money and giving some relief. But the whole scene, as you tour, get toward the end of this chapter, leaves your mind thinking, what in the world is God up to? Now, if you're a person of faith, if you, you know, believe the Bible is true and that God is always true to His Word, you can't help but believe God's hand has a place in this. And while we probably shouldn't use Esther as, a, you know, the book of Esther as, as a moral example or, you know, in, in marriage counseling or training, we could say without any doubt, God's got a purpose for this book to be at this place at this time. In the midst of difficult circumstances that she may not have chosen, God's got a plan. What's going to happen? And will she be up for the task? And then the last five verses set the stage for the events that are going to start happening in, in whirlwind fashion when you get into chapters 3, Four and following. We read about the other main character, Mordecai, and an experience he has at the gates of the city. And yet, it's another example of God's hand in all things. You see, in verses 19 through 23, we find out that Mordecai uncovers a plot. See, Mordecai just happened to be at the right place at the right time, and that place was the city gates. And he finds out, we don't know if he overheard or how he knows, but he finds out that there are two guards of the king, they're eunuchs, but they guard the gate, and they're angry. And they plan to lay hands on Ahasuerus, meaning they're looking for a way to assassinate the king, that his life is in danger. So Mordecai gets word, and Mordecai tells Queen Esther. Notice the title there. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. So God's already put Esther in this place where she has the ear of the king to hear about the plot that Mordecai uncovers. And notice that she tells him, you know, this is what I heard, and by the way, Mordecai told me. So Mordecai gets the credit, but he's not rewarded. It's written down in the book of the Chronicles, but most, if not all, Persian historians would tell you that when someone did something that pleased the king or that helped the king, the king would not only write it in the royal record, but he would almost immediately reward them for their help. And so we see Mordecai's name written down, but we don't see any instance that he's rewarded. Now, it could have just been a clerical oversight. Maybe they had a busy day. We could say it's insignificant. Or we could find it as just one of those just so happens. But you have to read on to find out how important it is. But what we can see through all of these pages as we look at this chapter is that the ever-present hand of God works throughout history to advance God's purposes and preserve His I'll, I'll admit, a lot of times it's, it's really hard to see God working. And it's even more difficult to understand exactly what he's up to. 
But if you remember a few basic things, first of all, God is always good, even when we don't see His good. If you remember that, if you remember that God always keeps His promises, think about that. The promise He made to Abraham still stands today. I'll make you a great nation. And He's preserved those Jewish people throughout all of history, and He's not finished. And the Jewish people, praise God. He's fulfilled His promise to King David, that a, that a king from his line would reign forever, and that king has a name, and his name is Jesus. He's the one who's the beginning and the end. He's the one that holds everything together. He's the one that is worthy of all things. He's the Savior, and he's coming again. God's hand is in all things for all time, and one day he's going to bring everything to completion. But in the meantime, he's still got a purpose for still saves people that call on the name of Jesus. He still protects and watches over his children. And even though we can't see him physically, we know he's not far away. In the early 1800s, a, a British songwriter wrote these lyrics. And before I give you a couple of application points, I want to just read these. His name is Edward Ostler. You might have heard of him. I never had. Um, but Listen to what he wrote. God unseen yet ever near, thy presence may we feel. And thus inspired with holy fear, before thine altar kneel. Here may thy faithful people know the blessings of thy love, the streams that through the desert flow, the manna from above. We come obedient to thy word to feast on heavenly food. Our meat, the body of the Lord, our drink, his precious blood. Thus may we all thy word obey, for we, O God, are thine, and go rejoicing on our way, renewed with strength divine. God's hand has a hand in all things. Let me just give you three things before we we focus on this for a moment. They all start with R. How can we this into practice. What should we remember? First, God has a hand in all things. It's difficult. It's hard to follow. Believe that. Remember, God has a hand in all things. And then rejoice. Rejoice that God is in control. You don't have to sort out every little detail, every little scenario of life. You're just supposed to trust and obey. Walk in faithfulness. And then for those of you that kind of tend to get bogged down in details and problems and circumstances, refocus. It's interesting. Sometimes, you know, when you talk about, you know, um, Know, training up infants or, or, or small, you know, small children that you know they redirect. You know, we're not going to do that. You know, we're not going to do that anymore. And so, what do you do? You get their mind off of it and help them think about something else. You know, and, and, and many times, you know, what we need to do is acknowledge our spiritual infancy and allow the Holy Spirit to redirect our focus off of 
the problems, the things that we keep rehearsing over in our mind and we can't let go of and refocus and just fix our eyes on on Jesus. Because he's the center of everything. He holds everything together. He's the one who works good in everything. Remember this, God's not far away. We can see his hand in all things. Let's pray. Oh Jesus, we are grateful for your goodness and as we prepare to sing together in prayer, pray Help us to focus on these three things that we would remember, we'd rejoice, we'd refocus. Give us the ability to see your hand at work in all things for your glory. I pray this in your name. Amen. I just want to encourage you as we did last week. Um, you won't find um, words on the screen have Jackie play quietly. Um, we'll hear from our worship team in a moment as they close us in song, but we want to take this opportunity to pause and reflect on what God is saying to us. The music just helps us to not listen to the hum of the air conditioner. Um, it helps us to kind of gather our thoughts in our minds. But maybe today you need to remember God's faithfulness. Maybe you need to rejoice. You found yourself in a, in a bit of a dry spot, or maybe you would say that you know, you, you don't feel contented, but you need to rejoice. Or maybe you need to rejoice, refocus. Fix your eyes on Jesus again, or maybe fix your eyes on Jesus for the very first time. Take your eyes off yourself and focus on Him. As Jackie plays, um, the instruments play quietly as we pray you would listen to God and respond as you see. song, wherever he leads, I'll go. When we put our trust in God's hand that works in all things, and we say with a willing heart that wherever you lead, I go. He's willing to walk with us through the challenges, through the darkness, through the heartache and through the pain. And while all those things may not go away, he's always promised that his presence will be with us as he works 
in us and through us for his glory. I want to thank you for, for being here for worship. And your, your, attend, your attendance matters. Um, as the body of Christ, each one of us is important as we gather together. Um, it's an expression of, of faith. It's an exercise of, of the fellowship that God called us to. And it also is a testimony to one another that we consider this to be something that's valuable to us. Um, we're going to sing together. I invite you to stand, and since this is still relatively new, I know for the longest time when the music started, it was just, you can hit the doors, but I do, um, the words will be on the screen, and I do just invite you to sing um, along with us, and then when we're finished singing, um, you're dismissed. Lord bless you. Show. 